Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Today on the In the Know, I've got John Caston, who founded 2U, the Princeton Review, and runs Noodle. They're all about education. Hello and welcome to In the Know, John Castman, old friend, ed tech entrepreneur, I guess. John, is that, is that how you roll? Sure. And hey. <laughs> yeah, you go by ed tech entrepreneur? Yes. I thought you were going to elaborate <laughs> on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I've been involved in ed tech for like 30 years. I founded Princeton Review, ran it for a couple decades, and then I founded uh, 2U and ran that for about five years. And now I run Noodle, all of them dealing with various facets of higher ed in particular, but also a little bit of K-12. You have uh, seen a lot of cycles and a lot of global kind of events, let's say, in your entrepreneurship uh, experiences. And and maybe as we talk today in uh, early April 2020, it's stuff like that that will be on people's minds. What's it like to build or run a company in in some of these things you've seen in the past as well as now, and then maybe even just what are some of the implications for, for education itself? I wonder if you've been noodling on all that these last uh, few weeks while you're holed up. I absolutely have. You know, I've been through a bunch of recessions. As you say, people go back to school. You always wonder if this recession will be different than the others, including 2009, which was a pretty serious recession. We never had a down quarter. The common response and the right response, if the job market's terrible, is go get a degree and, you know, when things open back up, you're just well positioned to thrive. So people do that and my expectation is that they're going to do that again. The schools we work with are increasing marketing budgets right now and we're plowing forward. Why don't you say briefly, I guess like Princeton Review is super famous and 2U is a huge company that you built that helps. Offline universities do online learning and courses, but Noodle may not be as well-known for everybody. It is not as well-known, but largely we do, we are the next generation of 2U. Um, My goal there was to prove that online education could be good, could be as good as campus-based. And that seems like an easy assertion now. It wasn't a decade ago. The first batch of online programs were from terrible universities and the programs were terrible. And that's not unusual, right? Uh, Every new medium starts out with porn and then mainstream players, you know, sort of come into the space. And, but everybody was nervous about online because the programs were so terrible. Um, You know, like 3% graduation rates, kind of terrible. And the question, the thought experiment was, what if a really good university built a program intended to be really good? What if it had the same admissions requirements as on campus, the same faculty, the same commitment to quality? What kind of graduation rates would we get? What kind of of, uh, satisfaction would we get? And the answer was, by every metric, the programs that are built that way are as good as the programs on campus. Now, these are largely graduate school for reasons we can talk about. So my thought experiment now is, can we make higher ed 25% less expensive while still improving the quality of instruction. And the method is by sort of thinking first about, all right, you build an online program and then you collapse your online and on campus into an agile program 
we have one infrastructure, one marketing and recruiting effort, one instructional design effort, and this student's taking it online and this student's taking it on campus, but it's all one community and we're indifferent as to who takes which things in, in which medium. Some people are on a campus, living there, residential, some are commuting, some are not at the campus at all, they just live somewhere else. This student started on campus and then got transferred and is now online. This student's taking some courses on campus and some courses online based on her schedule. But, you know, as a school, that's all good. And if you use the infrastructure that exists today and the providers that exist and the knowledge that exists, this is a, you know, it used to cost $15 million to launch a program. And you can do it now, a really good program for like two and a half million. And it used to be really risky and so cost of capital was very high, and now it really isn't. If you're a good school and you build a good program, you'll get students. And you put those together, you can take the cost of online education dramatically down and at the same time use those same tools and investment to take the cost of on-campus education down without in any way impairing the student-faculty relationship, in fact, enhancing it. I guess you're describing something that already happens in every workplace. Every workplace is right. already a hybrid workplace where people are fluidly coming and going, working from home, working on a trip, travel, remote, whatever. Workplaces already do that. That's right. Every other part of society has moved in that direction. You know, of 200 people at Noodle, 150 are remote already. So it was not a tremendous stretch for us to go completely remote a couple weeks ago. The interesting moment that we're in that I think you'll you'll have a lot to say about, I mean, our business, we, we run workplaces. Notel is 500 workplaces around the world, and this virus has closed every workplace, and it has closed every school, virtually, and in a way, they're both the same kind of offline business, the notion of an office or a school. You usually just visualize an offline thing. All of a sudden, they're all X from home, and um, whatever your theories had been about to you and whatever you had proven in what it accomplished, well, somehow, every single school took every single class and, and turned it into an online class just overnight without even any preparation or anything. I mean, how do you feel about that, the sort of forced flip over? Look, if, if you whip out your phone and video your backyard and your kids playing, you can say that you made a movie. But it's not a movie anybody wants to watch. And <laughs> the online efforts right now, you know, within higher ed are, are, are pretty uniformly terrible. It's great that they're doing it. It's a logical, smart, you know, kind of responsive uh, thing to do. But nobody, I mean, everybody's holding their nose and saying, we got to get through this semester. And they're doing the best they can. What is happening on campuses right now or what is happening in universities right now is like a C minus kind of distance learning thing. Take me through that a little more. I'm curious to understand. I mean, I, for the last number of years, have been teaching a class for undergrads at Columbia about, you know, startups and stuff like that. And um, I don't have a lot of time and my time is getting even more scarce. I couldn't even do it. As I was trying to do it, adequately, or maybe I got it down to like a handful of things that I had to do and that students had to do. And one of them is show up and talk for a few hours and have some level of discussion and, and engagement from the students. So that's like the live 
part of it, which to me seemed like it could be a video and it could be like a webinar kind of thing. They got to read stuff and then they got to meet somehow themselves and make stuff, PowerPoints, papers, stuff like that. To me, that's the class. Like it's those three mechanics. If I had to do all that online, like instantly, drop of a hat, I feel like I could use the same tools I use when I do my workplace stuff, right? There'd be some Zooms, maybe I'd record some lecturish stuff that they watch, you know, as a YouTube. I don't know. That'd be my C minus implementation, I guess. Is that what people are doing? Like, what do you think people are doing right now? It would be. Number one, a good online effort. You take anything that would have been a lecture, anything where you would have been talking. And lectures, by the way, are terrible education. I mean, the, the data on lectures is really interesting. On the one hand, people learn nothing. Like, it's barely better than, <laughs> than you know, watching an episode of Lost in Space. It's not an educational thing. But on the other hand, versus active learning and other ways of learning that do work, people report, students report, that they learned a lot. It feels great, and it does nothing. So let's say for a minute that lectures already are kind of not awesome. Nothing is worse than a lecture of you, than a video of you giving that same talk. You know, in the classroom, (laughs) at least there's a certain energy, and, you know, you're in the presence of somebody really smart and great and accomplished, and you know that you're going to have questions and that it's going to become a two-way conversation relatively soon. But you know, just watching a video of it, when somebody sends me a video online, if it's more than like 30 seconds, I just hate the guy. Like, I feel like they, mm-hmm. it better be awesome because why am I watching this? So good asynchronous materials, the stuff that you don't have to be in the room at the same time as a professor, need to be modular, interactive, collaborative, adaptive, and relatively well-designed. Like, it should feel useful and interesting, and it should engage me in ways that are likely to have me actually learn something. So in creating one course and taking your course and bringing it online, I would need 100 hours of your time. I'd need the same time that you're going to spend teaching a course. And I would need fifty to $100,000 of instructional design resources. The person working with you thinking through in unit four, what are the skills, what's the information I want to really get across here, and how would I know if students have learned them, and what's the very best way of teaching them, and then, you know, a lot of that money going into the, the learning objects themselves. Once you've done that, that covers in, a, in let's say, a three-credit course, maybe a, a three-credit course, by the way, means three hours a week of class time. That's sort of Carnegie units. So maybe an hour and a half we now have covered right, with these modular interactive things. and Well, but what are the modular objects? I mean, are well, they reading or are they like it could be a case study. It could be, well, some, there are readings to be sure that, uh, you know, or, or just a short video of you talking. But what you really want to do, I'll give you an example of one. You're going to teach how to give feedback to an employee, how to give a performance review. And maybe there's a little video where you're talking about some of the issues and reading. And then the activity might be we pair you up in groups of two and we give you each a cheat sheet. You're the employer. This is what you think of the job I'm doing. This is how you're thinking of me as a growth potential. And then the cheat sheet that I would get, this is what I think of you as a boss and what I think of the company, what my plans are, Mm -hmm. and go. And now we do this for five or ten minutes, record it, post it. That's assignment number one. 
Assignment number two is you're going to watch all the other videos from the class and comment mm -hmm. on them. Mm -hmm. And the professor is going to do the same. On this modular object thing at this, up to this moment, you're actually mm -hmm. just giving really good advice on instructional design, period. I mean, in the classroom, yeah. you, would, you would say the same thing. You'd say, hey, don't get up there and then just stand and talk for an hour and a half. Get up there, make sure, you know, you have some level of understanding and rapport with that room and get them to work face to face with each other, go sit in some of these groups. Like they're doing stuff and they're engaged with each other and, and with you to an extent, but they're not there to just listen to, you know, an uninterrupted monologue. That's absolutely right. A lot of a good instruction is good instruction, but taking advantage of the medium, the fact that we can all watch everybody yeah, instead of cool. just having two people in front of the room, you know, like, let's go for that. And if you really want another step, which we generally don't because there's limited budgets, you could put some AI against it, you know, and analyze the word choices and so forth. Just the fact that when you have a class, you can transcript, you know, you're recording it transcripting it and everybody can go look at that class I, i'm talking about a synchronous class a zoom session that you search for the word banana on the lms and it's like well it's in that piece of text over here and it's in this assignment that you handed in and by the way it's in you know minute 47 of hmm. class two that there are things you can do online that you couldn't do in a classroom which mm -hmm. make up for the things that you can do in a classroom that you can't do online which is basically just smell other people like feel them like the sure. kind of human interactions are harder online and they are valuable i mean in the workplace where we spend our time at the hotel thinking about it, and also you know just in my work itself feelings are real feelings are real it's not just like i need to communicate information to my colleagues via like you know a communique we gotta like feel we understand each other and feel that we support each other and read the subtle clues about where someone is on something. And, and I suppose that's part of a great instructor in a room or students with each other. And those are easier to do in person, aren't they? Almost every professor, if you gave them a choice, the students can see you as you're lecturing, but you can't see them. Or they can only hear you, but you can see their eyes. Would choose oh. the second, right? right? It's what's connecting and what isn't connecting with whom and how do I sculpt the lesson? And it, teaching to a, a camera is really hard. So if you take half the class and you move it to asynchronous materials, well-designed. Okay, modular objects, okay. Now you take the other half, the conversation, and because we only have an hour and a half left, I can split the larger class, let's say I got 25 students, into two groups of 12 or 13. You're my Thursday afternoon group, you're, you're my Wednesday morning group. Now. Those are really intimate conversations. They fit on a screen. Have everybody on the screen at the same time and I can see everybody's eyes and everybody's mics are turned on. I'm still teaching three hours. They're still learning for three hours, an hour and a half asynchronous, an hour and a half class, but it's really a more intimate experience, a better experience and more flexible. You work better in the morning, you're in a different time zone, you really need the afternoon. There are a lot of ways to make online learning actually pretty useful. And the yeah. way it fits around your life is so good that for a lot of students, that makes up for the fact that, that you don't have as high a social functionality, a high as high a connection to the other students. So that's your C minus rating. More or less what you're saying no, is... That would get you to a B plus. Like oh, well, if you no, really sorry. design I mean, the program, 
Right, right, right. Sorry. What I mean is like you're showing with more clarity the diff between the folks that were just doing offline and they might not have been doing it great, but they transported it online without taking advantage of any of the benefits and replicating and sort of diminishing many of the disadvantages of uh, offline. That's how you get to the C minus. That's right. Your modular objects, the more intimate communication, the better synchronization of smaller groups, those are the ways to take lots of advantages and get a B plus. And that's what you think is happening to 99% of college students at this moment who just got pushed online. I think right now everybody's doing the best they can and everybody yeah. understands that it's not great. The, the question, if you're a faculty member, a student, a board member, you know, there's a reasonable chance that this fall is going to be disrupted as well. Maybe not the whole semester. Yeah. Maybe you go back. Yeah, to that's what I was wondering. Problem. Yeah, do you think, I mean, you must be in touch with some groups. I mean, yeah. people must have a plan at this point for the no return to campus. Like, if you don't have a plan, you must be racing on this. And they are. Like, everybody's trying to figure it out. Because what we're doing right now, you get a mulligan, right? Like, nobody saw this coming. Certainly not this president, but that's a whole different conversation but something this disruptive to campuses. And so everybody's like, okay, you're doing the best you can. For the fall, let's make sure faculty's properly trained. Let's have a support center for students and faculty that 24 seven, there's somebody on the phone who can help them through problems mm -hmm. and help them deal with the administration. Let's get working on instructional design. Let's get working on our tech infrastructure to make it social, to make it more robust. If we have to go online again, Let's do it with some grace. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. This means that perhaps at this moment, it's like a fog of war kind of moment for many of your customers and partners, but you have the hunch that maybe Noodle is going to be massively in demand these next months after this? We are well in demand right now. And, you know, this is one of those things. You look at a crisis like this and say, well, I know Hira does great in a recession. I don't actually know how it does in a depression. So, you know, I'm nervous. There are a lot of unknowns right now, but we are actively involved with dozens of universities around the country right now in planning a much more systemic, large-scale approach to being agile, being flexible. 
Agile and flexible are words that uh, I'm sure you've heard me use around Notel over the years. And I hope we'll talk a little bit about Office too, but as we've been thinking about what happens next, I mean, at this moment, everything's frozen, okay. Soon, people have to figure out how to go back. And I guess for the education sector, okay, well, there's summer, and there's always the notion of going back in September. And so they'll probably have some kind of way to ramp back up. But what you do ramp back up needs to be different as well. We described the scenario where maybe it's shut down again in the fall, but how about the scenario where you do restart and uh, people are trying to just run their you know, offline universities? Can you do them in the same way? Like the levels of density, the cafeterias, those lecture rooms. I know that when I'm on the Columbia campus and I'm lecturing to a room of 40 people, that's like, you know, I don't know. How big is it? 500, 600 square feet. It's like small. People have these tiny little zero radius, no, uh, no buffer. Like, do these rooms have to be rethought? Is can the campus ever be the same? I think it can be. You know, there are diseases in the world. There were before COVID, and there'll be others. We had plenty of notice that this was coming. You know, I mean, the data says there were reports on this in November, and we just have to be prepared if something terrible is coming that we can disperse as necessary. But unless there's something like a pandemic coming, I'll take my chances every day, you know, and do getting on the subway, going to a crowded classroom. You know, we all have germs and we all get colds. And let me offer a slightly different view there. The return, let's say we get it going. And it's not that we're back in business as usual yet, but we, we're concerned. Let's say there's a vaccine. Once that's there and everyone's got it, but let, let me paint for you a little bit of a scenario. So the scenario would be we're ramping back up. We're trying to get business going again, but we want to minimize super spreader, high concentration events. So we still don't allow nightclubs and concerts and 50,000 people in an arena kind of events. Okay, so that's the outermost ring. As you come in a little more, I think the kinds of settings that you see in a, you know, an undergrad cafeteria with 500 people all in, maybe some of those things aren't allowed. Maybe we need to come up with some spacing. Maybe classrooms ought to have students sitting sitting a couple seats away from each other. Just to, you're not taking risk to zero. You're taking it down by half. Something like that. And I wonder if you've heard people starting to think like that. Not a lot. There's so many things like that. The dorms are yeah. much tighter. Yeah. The classrooms, like every part of a college. Like, you know, Tony Shea talks about this all the time, that creativity springs out of random collisions, out of lots of smart people kind of buzzing around each other and uh, taking out the density of a university dramatically reduces, I think, the quality of the school. And the quality power, of the right? Because the power of it is the concentration of like-minded folks, right? And concentration right. is what we're considering dialing down. Although that has been more or less your proposal in your work on Noodle, right? You're saying hybridize and move some of those interactions to digital. The old model looks exactly like, you know, Oxford Cambridge 1500. The new model is is late in arriving, but all of a sudden we're going to have to deal, that that could be the fault. You know, in your ideal world, you know, you've got this agile campus. And imagine if the university said to you, hey, you got this extra scholarship because you're a good student. Above all of the other scholarships you're already getting, here's an extra $25,000 
spread out over four years. But you can only spend six spring and falls on campus. So the other two semesters, you could come for the summer and we'll be more robust in terms of our use of the summer. You can take a semester doing an internship someplace and we'll arrange it and we'll flank it with some online courses so that you can study there. You can study abroad. You can be someplace tied into a potential job even while you're here. If a campus does that successfully, not only will they save every student 25K, which by the way, at a lot of schools is the average indebtedness coming out of college of the students who have debt, but the school, it's actually accretive to the school. The school would save money beyond that. Those are the kinds of ways of using technology that add capacity, that just use the buildings better. You've got this beautiful physical plant. What if we could put 25%, 30%, 40% more students through that campus, add density? What I would suggest in my line of questioning with you here, John, is just um, that's your pitch pre-COVID. And in a COVID world, your pitch is the same, but you're reducing density. You For the very you serve the same community of students. Yeah. And well, I, I wonder how short I, it is. You think I it's think just there's a small? vanishingly small time between I don't want to be on campus at all, or I don't want students on my campus at all, because we don't have the means to deal with things if they get sick, if they get sick en masse. And there's a vaccine, and now we can resume having the kind of density you're talking about. That the middle between those two moments, I think, is going to be very short. Maybe it's, well, certainly this spring, but maybe it's the fall, maybe one more semester, Mac, is roughly what you think. Well, I'm hoping. You know, there are an awful lot of people working on vaccines around the world and candidates that are in testing right now. And this seems like something that we know how to deal with that way. It just is a matter of time. You know, it's also possible that people come back to campus in August, September, things flare up in one part of the country or another or in the whole country, and then they go back off campus and then they come back on campus as soon as things clear up. And I just think we have to be prepared for all sorts of weird stuff between here and there. But once we're there, is density really a bad thing in general? And will you change the way you configure your offices once there's a vaccine? I think once everyone in the world got it, that's going to be very reassuring. My view is this is like terrorism, 9-11. The world did change after 9-11. I don't think higher ed changed very much. But I do have some tangible evidence that the work, like cities changed, transportation changed, and offices also did change. I mean, you remember, John, the 90s, you could walk into an office building and it was no problem. And sometime after 2001, it became as difficult as getting onto an airplane while they make you wait and call and do everything else, you know. And it's just permanent. It just was a permanent change. And, you know, there are a handful of changes that happened. And I suspect that, well, I mean, you probably saw like the Bill Gates 2015 thing on TED where he was, and a few years before that, in 2005, there was one of his favorite authors, Vaclav Smeal, who wrote this paper. He's like evaluating probabilities for, you know, he called them discontinuous fatalities in the coming 50 years. So in 2005, he writes this paper and he's like, okay, what should we be worrying about? Asteroids, war, a volcano, an earthquake, a tidal wave, a famine, viruses. And then he assesses the probability of every one of those things happening in the coming couple of decades and how many people might die from it. And he's like, hmm. 
there appears to be a 100% probability that there will be a multi-million fatality virus in the coming couple of decades. So that's 2005. And the reasons he gave are the same things that are true now. In 2015, Gates is talking about it. Now we're all sitting here thinking, Jesus Christ, how did we manage to overlook all this? We missed the early signs. We got lucky on SARS. We got lucky on H1N1. And then this is the one. If this can happen, surely it can happen again. And that's my, my point about a driver around permanent change. Now, the permanent change doesn't mean there's no more universities, there's no more offices. It's definitely not that. But we're going to have to reform some stuff. I mean, we're not going to just settle for the idea that, well, if we notice something, we're just going to shut down all the offices in New York City again. Like, that's insane. Things have to, we have to learn, right? And um, so, yeah, office is going to be designed differently. Notions of antiviral are going to be relevant in the way we design density and tracking and access control and cleaning, the way that terrorism changed everything, too. And uh, Interesting. the last time they you, closed the schools, this time they are. Do you think that the way you clean an office will be different or that literally the idea of an open office of people at desks that are much closer than six feet itself changes, in which case you're driving the cost of an office way up in I ways that even after 9-11, cost did not go I up I think people much. need more space. Yeah, I mean, the, what you're saying is very likely to be true. When you're in the office, there should not be that cafeteria where everyone's lined up two inches away from each other. People are going to design the sort of uh, the industrial engineering of these flows to encourage more separation. They're going to measure how different environments create infection rates. And there's going to be certain kinds of designs that are better. And here's a couple of obvious things. Airports, hospitals, they get designed in a certain way, very much with the notion that there's a lot of people and a lot of them are sick and we don't want everyone to get sick. They're designed differently than offices. Offices do not empty out all the volume of the air in the building every day. Hospitals empty all the air out of the building every couple of hours because the air is where stuff is floating. Offices have been designed to recirculate all the same air to save energy. That's going to be changed. Cleaning protocols, yeah. Surfaces, stainless steel versus that cool artisanal wood. UV light, temperature detectors. There's going to be new stuff in places where folks congregate in the office. How much do you think that raises the cost per square foot of office space? There's a countervailing factor, too, which is the same hybrid notion you're describing about university campuses. I think everyone just learned how to work from home. And I think a sensible office manager who used to put 100 people in a space ought to try to manage that down to 60 or 50. But they'll have the same 100 who officially work there as their office. There'll be some kind of rotation or shift schedule. They'll come in three days a week. Someone else will come in two days a week. So you may get the same actually, office bang for your buck, you know? Yep. It's actually how we run. Um, at any given moment, yeah, the desks are close together, but half the people aren't there because they're in a conference room or they're out on a call or working from home. The nominal density is much higher than the actual density. Right. And that's already been happening in, in the workplace for years, you know, and you get these like penny-pinching CFOs who look at, their buildings and they say, oh, I only have 80% utilization, 70% utilization. I, I need to 
change how we do it. But what's happening is technology is changing how people work. Embracing the notion of hybrid, I think that on the other end of this thing, flexibility, agility, here, there, everywhere, redesign, those are going to happen. My hunch would be that universities, there'll be some that really embrace your ideas, create these hybrid type formats. They'll get a lot more utilization out of their their physical spaces, and they may actually feel safer and more progressive, better quality. There may be some kind of step function change for the industry that comes out of this moment, and I wonder if you think this is one of those kinds of moments. The difference, I think, between our worlds, the cost of Pyred is the 800-pound gorilla. Like, it is at a breaking point. Uh, we're about eight years running of enrollment overall in the U.S. in higher ed being down. And now we've got, both by virtue of this administration and now uh, the virus, but also as other countries build capacity, the flow of international students is going to slow. At the same time as there's, we're coming off of a baby boom and into a real uh, trough. So you've got schools that are expensive, that everybody is worried about the expense of college and a limited population to go to, there's just no room for schools to say, well, we're going to spread out and it'll only be 30% more expensive to go to college. Like, that's just not an option. Well, you know, I think there's a lot of parallelism in these, in these two industries. The office for a typical company, you pay somebody $100, you spend about $10 per year right. for their seat to sit in. And so that's a meaningful part of everybody's P&L. It's in the range of 5 to 10% of most companies' P&Ls that they're, they're spending on their facilities. It's, it's meaningful, you know. but if it went up by 30%, it means a 3% increase in my overall cost. Whereas yeah, it's bad. It's bad. It can't go up. A 3% actually would still be bad. It can't go up. And I guess what I was exploring with you on, on education, the cost has to go down for sure. You have laid out a bunch of ideas that that take it down. You have laid out a bunch of ideas that take it down. Now, you also provide the benefit that not everyone has to be there in person. That mix, proportion of time spent, et cetera, seems like something folks could toy with. If we can do it right, we can keep the Mm -hmm. secret sauce. We can, like, for instance, the cost of teaching in higher ed, the actual cost of an instructor leading a class is about 20% of the cost of higher ed. So when people look to make college less expensive, they always go after faculty. Right, and that's not going to move the needle, yeah. This is not the problem. And by the way, total faculty pay for teaching hasn't gone up that much in the past 20 years. Actually, the cost of higher ed hasn't gone up that much in actual, in real dollars. One of the weird things about college, if you think about airlines, Everybody on the plane is paying a different price back when there were airlines, paying a different price for their seat, but you advertise your least expensive seat. Colleges started price segmenting 30 years ago. Every student at that school is paying a different tuition based largely on their income, but also on merit. And they advertise their most expensive seat. So the the actual cost of higher ed is less than people think it is, but it's still very high. and the part of it that's going up is not teaching, it's academic support and counseling. It's all of the different support systems at a school. That cost has tripled in the past 20 years. And at many schools is now more expensive than teaching. 
Unbelievable. So the use of, yeah, the use of technology to lower those costs while providing better service, that's exactly what every other industry has done. John, it's been amazing talking with you. I think we could probably go for like three more hours. Should we schedule it now? Anytime. Anytime. It's great to speak with you. And, and Thank you so much uh, for being on the, on the No, I hope that some folks can get some stuff uh, out of this. I think we are about to accelerate the transformation of, uh, of education. We are. It was uh, great hanging out. Hey, listeners, thanks for subscribing, or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love of people telling us how to spread great ideas. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the word, and people will follow. Cheers. Thank you.